Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. My lovely partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio and monitoring the chat room now. So, Rav, say hello to everyone, and please add your words of wisdom for the day. Well, hello, everyone. It is great to be back for another exciting live show. Um, My words of wisdom for today, that's challenging i would say be open to learning something new um but also be discerning about it to respect your own intelligence so think about what it is that you're hearing and uh yeah choose for yourself what what sounds right all right well those are always good words for the day all right now we've been traveling as ravinder kind of intimated there a lot lately so for the past three weeks we have aired replays some of our more popular shows. I'm glad to be back. I enjoyed Europe and uh, trekking down my wife's, uh, you know, memory lane, seeing her her university and her favorite ocean, etc. and so forth. But I want you to take a look at the terrific guests that we have coming up to the show in the next three months. So be sure to check that out by going to provocativeenlightenment.com. Uh, and how about you, Ravinder? Does it feel good to be back? It is great to be back, and you're right. We've got a great lineup of guests coming up. So, yeah, I mean, I may have been away um, on a bit of vacation, but that doesn't mean it's a total vacation because we've been plugging in more guests and, you know, tracking down some really uh, exciting information. So, yeah, we've got some good stuff coming up. Including today's guest, of course. Absolutely. All right, in this week's Spotlight, I would like to take up the idea of ambiguity. If you give any serious thought to this, you must wonder how it is that our minds are equipped to recognize an ambiguity, let alone decipher it. Certainly, they're not blank slates, tabula rasas. They seem to come in equipped with special abilities that give us what artificial intelligence folks have yet to figure out how to do. So think for a minute of artificial intelligence or AI, machine learning, ML as they say, experts recognize that the world we live in is messy, full of uncertainty and ambiguity. Brian Zybart, a professor of computer science at the University of Illinois at Chicago, has suggested one working solution for this. His solution, quote, feeding systems messier data in the lab can train them to better recognize and address uncertainty. Well, now, I don't know if AI systems will ever be able to truly recognize ambiguity in the many forms that we encounter in our real world, but I'm certain 
that it will never be able to ascertain the ambiguous beauty in Emily Dickinson's The Brain is Whiter Than the Sky. Dickinson's poem goes like this. The brain is whiter than the sky, for put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges, buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do as syllable from a sound. Is Dickinson saying the brain, brain mind, is a part of one mind brain, a form of process theology? Is she saying the brain, a hunk of matter, is the origin of our thought and being, a form of agnosticism based on emergent properties of the brain? Is she offering up a view of Darwinian reductionism, psychological processes, neurochemical interactions, the soul only an illusion? Some of the beauty in art is how it transcends the limitations of literality. Poetry is one such expression of art. I suggest that it is the ambiguity in nature and art that feeds the imagination, leading to uncertainty in life. Further, it is this very uncertainty that makes us human, capable of recognizing ambiguity and thereby enabling true self-reflection. Webster defines ambiguity this way the quality or state of being ambiguous, especially in meaning. It is our certainty of our own ambiguous nature that leads to genuine self-reflection. The meaning of life, the purpose for each of us, our own unique expression, etc. and so forth, all the big questions, that is the true ambiguity we all seek to make clear. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? That is a deep spotlight. That is a very, very deep spotlight. That's like, hmm, okay. Well, um, the beauty of art, you know, it, it does come down to how the perceiver is interpreting everything. So, And it's the fact that it can be interpreted in so many different ways. I think it comes down to the fact that life isn't black and white. So it's not... Um, AIs can't understand it because they're either on or they're off but we have all of these different shades of grey in between and all the other colours and that's what makes life so beautiful and exciting and fun otherwise I think it'd be boring well I think another side to ambiguity is that it as with Dickinson's poem it gives us the opportunity to read in to life that which we would like life to hold for us yeah Okay. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Barbara wrote, I simply love your radio show. I must admit to replaying several of them just to be sure I fully understand. No one does a show like yours, and we need more entertainment that provides meaningful information. Thank you, and please keep the shows coming. Well, thank you. We plan to do just that. Lindsay wrote, I just found your podcast on iTunes, and wow, what a great collection of interviews and experts. I'm trying to catch up, so I'm listening to three or more shows a day now. Well, that'll keep you busy. 
Roseline wrote, Thank you for the Intertalk programs. All I can say is the divine power somehow led me to your site when I was looking for a solution on personal challenges that have hampered my growth for many years. And after buying the first product, I experienced change and have been buying several products since then. Levent wrote, I have read your mind programming book with great pleasure. Thank you for your help. And Jonathan wrote, wow, what a wide-eyed awakening I gained from reading your book, Gotcha. Everyone should have to read this one as a condition to vote. Thank you for your work. What do you think about that as a condition to vote, Rev? Oh, I think so. You know, I, I think when you brought Gotcha out, you're actually a little bit ahead of the time. Uh, because the information in that is what has been coming out this last year or so, and there's a whole lot more in there. So I would recommend everybody get it because it will open your eyes. And you, yeah, once you see things differently, once you understand what's going on around you, you have the ability to discern the, I don't know, all the tactics that are used against you and uh, actually discover what you think for yourself. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, Real Magic with author Dr. Dean Radin. Now, Dr. Radin has been on the show before, but for those of you who may have missed that episode, let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dean Radin, Ph.D., is Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, an Associated Distinguished Professor of Integral and Transpersonal Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an M.S. in Electrical Engineering and a Ph.D. in Psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, he held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He is author or co-author of hundreds of technical and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, and four popular books, The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic, the subject of today's show. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Dean Radin. Thank you, Eldon. Happy to be here. Oh, I've been really looking forward to this. I enjoyed your book. It is a fun read. Uh, it's informative, of course, but it is fun to read. It's an easy read. It's something I suggest everybody get their hands on, take a look at. Um, it, uh, it, thanks much for re- writing the book. I, I, that's all I can say. I really enjoyed it. As you. you know, Professor, we like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, what are you passionate about today, and how did you become involved in what most think of as paranormal research? Well, I guess uh, what I'm passionate about today is what I've been passionate about for about 40 years, my professional working life, uh, and that is uh, to understand the nature of consciousness and, and the role of consciousness in the physical world. That's that's what has captured my attention and has kept me uh, uh, off the streets at night, wondering about. And probably uh, would for many lifetimes, sir. I'm yeah. sorry. Continue. No, it's it's true. It's it's been a, a 
question that philosophers have been struggling with ever since the the first person started asking questions like, uh, why is there anything? Who, who am I? What am I? Why am I aware of anything? All those kinds of questions. So I've always right. been fascinated by all that. And in particular, uh, the way that I've studied this question, there are many different directions that can be taken, but I've been interested in experiences that challenge the prevailing scientific worldview. What I mean by that is that uh, from a scientific perspective today, the consciousness, by which I mean awareness or self-awareness, is generally thought to be a product of the brain, that the brain somehow produces awareness. Uh, and maybe that's true and maybe it's not true. And the reason why we think it may not be true, or at least not completely true, is because people report experiences that are not not compatible with the idea that it is a brain-centric phenomenon. And so those experiences include mystical experiences, intuitions, synchronicities, telepathy, clairvoyance, the whole range of what we might think of as psychic phenomena. And up until a few hundred years ago, before the scientific time, uh, we didn't really have ways of experimentally testing if the if these kinds of phenomena were real, or if they were illusions. But since about the late 1800s, we have been testing these these kinds of experiences, and we now know to very high levels of confidence from a scientific perspective that, that telepathy and clairvoyance and precognition and psychokinesis, the, the main classes of psychic phenomena, we know that they're real. So that provides a major challenge to today's scientific understanding of what consciousness is and what it's capable of. And so scientists are attracted to things that are curious and unexplained, and that's this is the particular curiosity that has captured my attention and continues to do so. Well, since you brought up the science, uh, Professor, you're not unfamiliar with criticism and um, how skeptics uh, and the attitude of many skeptics and indeed, you know, some mathematicians uh, like I.J. I. Good, who's disputed some of your your earlier work on the, the file uh, drawer effect. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I guess I look at a lot of this. I'm aware of a lot of this, and my sympathies, my empathy, all goes towards you. What I want to believe is what you you say, and yet there's this part of me that is also trained as a scientist who looks at all this other data. I just wonder how that may impact you and your work, uh, the kinds of criticisms that sometimes are thrown your direction. Well, uh, anyone who's involved in the academic world is used to getting critiques. That's the uh, from outside the, the academic world. It may seem like uh, that maybe it's only at the cutting edge of science where this happens, or the cutting edge of scholarship. But if you if you read the professional journals in virtually any area of of academic work, you have people screaming at each other all the time. True. Because the the fun of doing uh, science or scholarship is that you're you're dealing with the unknown. You're right at the edge of what's already known. I mean, it's no fun to already study something that we understand. 
And the moment you get into a domain where it, there's uncertainty, you have people who are, are arguing uh, for every possible way of interpreting data and interpreting even history. Right. So, where uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that that uh, skepticism is is unnecessary. In fact, it's absolutely necessary because almost by definition, when you're working in the unknown, you don't know what the right answer is yet. So my, I, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think by, the, the converse is also true. You, there have been a number of uh, highly uh, touted scientists who have uh, commented very positively on your new book, Real Magic. So, uh, you know, I guess the point is, my my question's really more about how it impacts you personally. Does I mean, I, I some of my own work I have been criticized over the years, uh, and uh, and and I know it has an impact. It uh, uh, it's it some kind. It it sometimes can actually diminish your passion to continue the work that you're in. So I was just curious if you had any of that influence as a result of it. Oh sure, no, nobody likes to be attacked, so and I, I don't like it any more than the next person. And it's true that uh, any time you get a criticism, whether you think it's justified or not, uh, it chips away at your enthusiasm, it, because it's much much easier to have a comfortable life where you're never challenging anybody. Uh, but it, it, after a couple of days, that wears off, and the original reason for being enthusiastic comes back because the mystery clearly is not solved yet Amen. so in the case of of scientific criticism you mentioned the the review of my first book that was covered in in nature to one of the top science journals right uh, ultimately uh, his objections to what I was reporting in in the conscious universe that book were found to be mistakes not mistakes on my part but mistakes on his part and on the part of the editors at Nature. So we we uh, wrote a letter to uh, to correct the the the, the story, and uh, eventually Nature did publish it. They published what what our complaint was. Uh, but of course, once something is published as a retraction, nobody remembers it anymore, and nobody even pays any attention to it. So we, we did it, at least feel that it, we had uh, corrected the the historical record by pointing out that the mistakes were in fact not mistakes; they were misinterpretations on the part of I.J. Good, who otherwise is, of course, a famous mathematician and statistician. Right. Unfortunately, I don't think I.J. Good commented again, and he and he really should have. That would have been appropriate. Uh, you heard today's spotlight, Professor. Do you think that uh, it is the very nature of ambiguity um, or our transitory nature of life that drives much of our search for meaning? Uh, I think that is that is probably the case, yes. We, we all struggle for certainty in our life because it makes things a lot more comfortable and predictable. But the fact is that there's very little certainty. On, on practically any domain of one's life. Uh, and so we struggle with that. We look for sources of comfort. I think that's where a lot of uh, the, the religious notions come from, that provides comfort in, in the face of uncertainty. 
So, yeah. So, on the other hand, you know, I think of scientists working at the edge of the known. Part of the of the motivation behind it is a kind of a faith, a scientific faith, that it's better to know than not to know. So, if it turns out, as uh, as Heisenberg showed, that there's an uncertainty principle that seems to be at the bottom of physics, seems to be wrapped into the nature of reality itself, that there's uncertainty, well, it's better to know that than not to know that. Uh, but we still we we're still plenty left to learn about the the nature of the universe, so you know, there's no reason to stop at this point. And again, it's a kind of a matter of faith that uh, eventually we will figure out much more than we currently know today, and in the process we will learn much more about how to reduce the uncertainty. Amen. All right, let's talk about your book. You're a scientist. You've done some pretty, I, I find, important work. Uh, how does a book on magic fit into the scheme of science? Well, there's, there's the one of the interesting things in writing this book was to find out, first of all, uh, how important magic was in the development of science itself. So if we go back more than 500 years ago, all the way from 500 years before today to roughly the beginning of humanity itself, all the way down to shamanism or indigenous societies, magic was the way that we understood reality. So we can think of it in a slightly different form as every human who, who looks out in the stars and wonders what in the world is that, uh, which seems to be a characteristic of humanity. We're all curious all the time. We come up with a story a cosmology that explains the universe and our role in it. Up until the scientific uh, worldview began in the Enlightenment, roughly the 1700s or 1600s, uh, all we had were stories. Now, the stories were not just pulled out of the air, so to speak. Uh, some of the stories were based on what mystics said. A mystic would go into a strange state and come back from that experience having certainty that the world is a certain way. And they would tell that story and people would resonate with it and it would be, be turned eventually into a religion or at least part of the esoteric traditions. So the what science has done is create a new kind of a story which is primarily based on empiricism, the development of new instruments, new ways of looking at reality, new ways of testing it and coming up with a story that we now know because of our technologies that that story is really good. It does allow us to make predictions, to build things that we couldn't build before. And so what people are taught today, most people, uh, is that this story is the correct one, except that it leaves out aspects of experience. As I was saying before, it doesn't explain mystical experience, it doesn't explain psychic phenomena, it doesn't explain genius, it doesn't explain all kinds of things, most of which have to do with the nature of our own experience. So that tells me that the current story, our cosmology as we know it today, is really good, but it's not complete. And in fact, the whole history of science has shown that somebody comes up with a story and then it becomes a little bit more comprehensive and then it's corrected it a little bit and becomes more and more comprehensive. Well, science has done that from the very beginning. And so what I'm proposing then in this, in this book is that when you look at the leading edge of science today, that it is expanding in the direction that is actually more and more compatible with what 
we would call the esoteric traditions, these traditions that go back to the beginning of recorded history. And I thought, well, that's quite interesting that science has begun to expand to the point where we're able to look back on what we used to discard as superstitions and saying, well, some of that was probably correct. But now we're beginning to look at it in, in modern terms and science will expand as a result. So this is all about magic because that's, that's part of the esoteric tradition. But I had to write this as a popular book in a way that would attract people to the topic. Because if I started writing about the history of science or the philosophy of science, only three people would end up reading it. And I figured, why go to the trouble of writing a book if only three people are going to read it? So that's yeah. why it's, I talk about magic. A lot of people miss the history of even the pre-Socratic philosophers. Many of them were mystics. Pythagoras is a case in point. Look, exactly. we have a break coming up, sir. When we come back, we'll pick up our conversation. We're speaking with Professor Dean Radin about his work and book, Real Magic. It is a great read. I strongly suggest you go get yourself a copy of it, and you can do so by uh, just simply visiting Barnes & Noble or Amazon online. Uh, you can learn more about our guest and his material by visiting his website at realmagicbook.com. One word, realmagicbook.com. Now, we have a video for you today featuring our guest discussing non-local consciousness. So if you're not already in the chat room, now's the time to get on over there. And you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used Inner Talk. Vicky wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Inner Talk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. It's happened to 
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Dean Radin about his work and book, Real Magic. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at realmagicbook.com. One word, realmagicbook.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, a hobby of mine, And some of those areas include intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So now, Professor, you've chosen You're the One by Flat Lonesome. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, I was a professional musician for 20 years on the violin, and I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So, not too surprisingly, I was always uh, attracted to bluegrass music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flat Lonesome is as part of a, a new kind of uh, bluegrass, and so I, I just love the harmony. I love the the compositions they have, but this particular song is talking about you're the one. So if you simply capitalize that the one, the O in one, that's kind of the theme of my book on real magic. It's also the theme, of course, in in the whole esoteric tradition. It's that you, meaning the thing that you call me inside your head, typically, is exactly the same as the one with a capital O. You, you, uh, the part of you which you think of as yourself in the esoteric, esoteric tradition is the same as a universal consciousness, as the big one. So I thought this has, has two meanings for me. I played the, played the violin, later I played the fiddle in bluegrass bands. I like the sound of this particular band, and the song itself is relevant to the book. Sad love song. Read the lyrics. It is a sad love song. Yeah, it's it's a love the the love song. Of course, is nice as well, but uh, I'm thinking more about the title. Because oftentimes you'll hear lyrics, and if you're not paying that close attention to it, what you get is the refrain. The refrain is, you're the one. Well, you're a psychologist, so I'm, I'm going to pass on you're not paying that much conscious attention to. But uh, we'll leave it at that, all right? Yeah. I, I might ask you about your girlfriends in another, another venue. You, you state in your book, sir, that it is a fundamental misunderstanding of consciousness that underlies most of the serious problems we face today. Flesh that out for us, please. Well, the current understanding of consciousness is based on the scientific worldview, which is materialism, which assumes that everything is made out of matter and energy, including the mind. That, for many people, leads to the idea of yourself and the world as a nihilistic philosophy, which means... Everything is meaningless, nothing 
uh, or everything is pointless means the same thing. Uh, and if there's no inherent meaning or virtue to anything in the universe, it's all random based on uh, matter and energy and how they interact, then the idea that, that we uh, should behave in certain ways is completely irrelevant. That gives rise to a, a way of behavior which can be described as uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. And that, of course, is one of the worst vices that we have. That it's, it's because of that level of greed and lack of empathy for others that the world is destroying itself. It certainly is not sustainable in the way that we've, we've been going. The only reason we haven't destroyed ourselves so far is because we haven't had weapons that could do that very easily, but of course now we do. Uh, so all of this devolves back into the notion of what is the best way of understanding reality. If, if the scientific worldview as we understand it today is correct, then consciousness doesn't have any particular meaning. It's just as meaningless as everything else, in which case it becomes rational to accept this idea that he who dies with the most toys wins. So, I think uh, if, if we would prefer not to go extinct as a species, it, uh, it serves us well to study in much more detail about what actually is consciousness. Why is it important? Uh, or even before that, why, is it important at all? Is it important to know what it is? Well, I think it is for the reasons I said. And, and that then is uh, why it, it really does come down to the, the nature of who we think we are and our role in reality. Of course, the one side of the argument is the reductionistic, materialistic side that you, you know, emergent properties, uh, that's, that's the nature of brain, et cetera, and so forth. The other side of the argument, and, that, and if I understand you, basically, is that non-local consciousness is evidence that consciousness is, is not. It, it, it is more than emergent properties. And I have to ask you this, because... In reading your material, all four of your books and some of your other information, I come away thinking Professor Dean Radin is a process theologian. Hart Schoen and Reese did a piece on process theology, I don't know now, 40 years ago. Uh, they termed it panantheism, where for all intent and purposes they likened uh, each of us as individuals, as cells in the body of one being. Do you have that overall view? Is that your philosophical perspective about uh, who we are, how we relate to one another, and how we should be relating to one another? Well, I, I am not a religious person. I don't subscribe to any religion. Uh, I was not brought up with a particular religion, uh, it's not not been part of the of my uh, my worldview or even sense of self. Uh, I'm primarily an empiricist, so I, when I'm say I'm driven by curiosity, like like a lot of scientists are, it is it was not pushed by a philosophical position. But having said that, for almost forty years doing empirical work studying the nature of consciousness, especially non-local consciousness. I think uh, it's simply a matter of getting older and starting to think uh, more in terms of how do I begin to understand these phenomena 
now that I've convinced myself that there's some of them are, are real, they're real things, how do we understand that? So there is there's a, a lineage within the uh, within parapsychology, which is the domain that I've been working in, uh, from philosophers and theologians who who try to cast the, these phenomena in terms of philosophy or in terms of theology. Mm-hmm. And so I've only relatively recently started reading that literature. And I suppose someone could say, yeah, this this would my position now, which is actually one of closer to an idealistic philosophical stance. This is relatively new for me to even think about it in philosophical terms. But somebody just today reminded me that uh, I have a Ph.D., so I have a doctorate in philosophy, yep. except I haven't actually been doing philosophy for a long time in, until I started writing this book and realized, oh, I guess I better pay more attention to the underlying assumptions, and that, of course, is what philosophy is about. So as to whether I fit into a, a, a theological way of thinking about this, I have to admit that I don't know enough about theology to know whether what your suggestion was is correct or not. Now, I guess my question would be, put the word theology out, and, and you have been doing philosophy only, you've been doing it in the Aristotelian side of things, observation, etc. Okay, now, um, as I read your material, I'm going to restate the question, I am led to believe that you are seeing all consciousness as participating in a greater consciousness, perhaps analogous to a perspective that holds each individual as a cell in one greater body, as the cells in my body or the cells in God's body. As you get the notion there. Is, is, is that your greater view or... Or are you thinking more in, a, in an abstract union sense of a collective unconscious uh, radio wave type of energy that just never dissipates? Uh, well, let's see. Let, let me describe what I, I think is going on, and then you'll tell me which of those two is more <laughs> compatible. Uh, my, my guess is that there, there is sort of a substance... Uh, that we might call consciousness or awareness that is somehow woven into the fabric of reality itself. It, it's simply there. We don't know where it came from. It's, it just is. Uh, from that, from that underlying substance, within, in the philosophical sense of something you stand on, a true fundamental ground, uh, it, it can give rise. Uh, from it can emerge things like matter and energy. And from that emerges all the rest of the physical universe that we know. So this, I, th- I think, might be considered more along the lines of something like neutral monism from a philosophical perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, our role in it, then, is that the, your, in your self-sense, your, your self-consciousness, uh, I think, is, is literally this, uh, the same as this underlying substance, because everything is made out of this substance of awareness. So what we enjoy as our own awareness is part of that. As to how it relates to the rest of the universe, it's not clear to me. So maybe we can be thought of as tiny little pinpricks that are part of this gigantic tapestry, 
which we call everything. Uh, but maybe it's it's less than that. Maybe we simply uh, the universe is aware in some way, and from it emerges space and time, and from that emerges all of the constituents of our our physical body. But the physical body is just one way in which awareness can become embodied. So we we are that. We are the the form of physicality where consciousness can take on a, a body form. But there could be an infinite number of other ways that uh, structures can become aware, self-aware, both in physical form and perhaps in energetic form and perhaps other forms that we don't even have names for yet. So uh, how, how, do, uh, how does that fit what, what, you, what you were suggesting as one of the possibilities? Well, for me, it sounds more like process theology, but I'm, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to pursue this for a minute because I want everybody to read your book. It's a magical book. It is a wonderful book, and, and, and I know that we're departing some from the book, but I have the opportunity to actually talk to you about the meaning you have taken out of all this research. Right. So your book talks about prayer as a form of magic. And, you, and, and there is evidence that prayers are answered. Now, let's just take the model you gave us of our pinpoint uh, participation in this tapestry. Uh, whatever this uh, one consciousness is that each of us are a part of, sometimes attends or appears to answer prayer, right or wrong? Right. Okay. So what... what what meaning? I mean, what does that tell us? How, how how are we informed by that knowledge? Okay, so by prayer, I'm not suggesting intercessory prayer, as in a traditional notion of right. a god that one asks for favors of, but rather to look at prayer from from a psychological perspective, where what it usually entails is something like intention. I I want. I would like something to happen. So intention, meaning pushing of will, has been tested in the laboratory, typically as, as some form of mind-matter interaction experiment, in lots of different ways over a long period of time, and it works. It works in the sense that your intention changes the behavior of the physical world uh, such that if you, there was no intention, the world would be slightly different. So that means that even from a, a personal uh, perspective, a tiny little human perspective, we can push our local world around in small ways, purely through our mind. So that suggests that prayer as well, as a form of intention, can do the same, can change perhaps the probability of events that would occur or, or affect other people's behavior, all kinds of things can possibly happen. So that's why when somebody says that a prayer was answered, uh, yeah, that can happen, but I interpret it in, in terms of intention being able to manipulate some aspects of the physical world and maybe the mental world. Okay, which would bring us, I, I mean, I guess where I get to here is I think, uh, assume for a moment that you know, each of us are but uh, what, a particle, a spark of uh, this consciousness. We'll avoid words like, you know, God and, and whatnot. We'll just call it this one consciousness. Right. Each of us are a spark of this. This one consciousness has the ability to create everything that we know. Yes. Uh, matter, energy, etc. 
And as a spark of that, a cell, if you will, just as each cell in our body has a certain clonal capacity, we can take, you know, tongue depressor, remove a few cells, and theoretically clone you or I, right? So each of us, therefore, have this same kind of creative capacity, um, maybe latent in many ways, uh, unexpressed, but... Am I understanding you correctly? Is that kind of where you are uh, with regard to your interpretation of intention uh, answered sp- and answered prayers? Yes, I would say that's pretty close. All right, sir. Sorry to pin you down on that, but it was important to me. I, I like to know where you are and, and what it is that you, you think, because that's not necessarily in your writing. And it's an opportunity to visit with the man, not just about his writing, but about those things that, are, that make him who he is. Right. You divide in your book real magic into three categories, mental influence, perception at a distance, and interactions with non-physical entity, entities. Indeed, you have your own terms for each of these categories. So please share with us both your terms and the meanings that you've assigned to each. So part of the, uh, the strategy in the book was to synthesize practices that, of magic for, for throughout history. What do people actually do? And the reason why I thought of that is because uh, it can make an analogy between technology today. Technology is to science as magical practice is to the esoteric traditions. Religion. So technology, technology reflects our worldview, our scientific worldview. And we know it's really good because we can do all sorts of nice things with it. But magical practice reflected the esoteric worldview. And, and so it's not an infinite number of practices. They actually fall into three categories. So one I call divination, which is perception through space and time. That's tarot cards, uh, gazing in a crystal ball, that sort of thing. Uh, The other called, the second is force of will, which is all about uh, intentional influence of the physical world. And the third is theurgy, which is communication with spirits or non-physical entities. So that's pretty much a... uh, a, cl- a way to classify thousands of different particular forms of practices uh, that you can find in virtually every esoteric tradition. And so the reason so, why I did it, the, the reason I categorize it in that way is because if you say, well, one class, namely divination, is perception through space and time, that is what parapsychology has been studying since the late 1800s. And we know that those phenomena are true. So that means that the magical practice is also true. Now, whether the specifics of each practice, ceremonial magic and use of spell casting and all that, that's, that's not going down to that level of detail. What I'm able to say that, that is in principle, we have the capacity to perceive through space and time as we have seen in the esoteric literature for forever. So, that means that the, the this esoteric lore has a kernel of truth in it, as best as we can tell with today's science. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And the same goes for the other two categories. Let me ask you this. You 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 speak about A.J. Iyer in your book. And, and I'm not sure which one of the categories, and as you define them, an NDE fits into. 
Um, and, and we have, I've, I've interviewed a number of experts or so-called experts on this show about NDEs and, um, including Kevin Nelson, who's convinced that, you know, an NDE is a REM intrusion. I'm sure you know of his work. I've had some on here that say, look, if you have an NDE, you come back with an IQ of over 200. Uh, just outrageous claims. Where does, where do NDEs fit in your category? And, and, and let me just ask you flat out, since you implied that A.J. Iyer, the logical positivist, the atheist, uh, was reluctant to change his perspective despite he had an NDE and therefore maybe was uh, too rigid. Um, what's your view on NDEs? Well, if, as you will see in the book, that that is the area where we have the least amount of scientific confidence in terms of its interpretation. As I did see in your book, sir. Yeah. So my, my own take on it is that we so far don't have a clean way of discriminating between uh, fantasy and things happening in the brain as a result of its in the process of dying uh, versus various kinds of psychic ability that are significantly improved as a result of being in a non-ordinary state of awareness. So, for example, one of the things in an NDE that convinces people that uh, they are literally separated from their body, that there's something like a, a soul or something that separates, uh, is that they can accurately describe something from a point of view that's not where their body is, like floating up near the ceiling or something. The problem is that uh, out-of-body states and clairvoyance and remote viewing, all, all of these perceptual abilities uh, can be demonstrated having nothing to do with being near death and, and in some cases not even being in an altered state of awareness. So the fact that somebody has a perspective that is not coming from their, where their eyes are does not necessarily mean that they have that something has literally separated from their body. And that's where that's my take then on NDEs that we we actually don't know how to interpret it correctly yet. Okay, well, I have basically the same conclusion, but I wanted to hear you say that because I do think it's one of those areas that confuses the entire field of of um, what shall we say non um, accepted research. Um, we're out of time, Professor. I want everybody to know what's the best way to reach out to you. Is it your website? Yeah, through deanradin.org, there is a, one of the tabs has a, a contact form where you can send me email. Uh, that's probably the best way because I basically never answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to thank you, Professor Radin, for your willingness to share with us today, for your work, and I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.